Hello, everyone. We'll start the presentation in about one minute as we wait for everyone to get settled in. Hello, everyone. We'll start the presentation in about 30 seconds as we continue to wait for everyone to settle in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health webcast, The Myths and Misconceptions of FRAR Clothing, presented by Bulwark. This is Alan Ferguson. I'm an associate editor at Safety and Health Magazine, and I'll moderate today's presentation. First, we'd like to thank you all for joining us, and on behalf of the National Safety Council, we hope that you, your loved ones, and all the people in your lives are remaining safe and healthy wherever they are. We'll start the presentation in a couple minutes, but first, there are some housekeeping items. As a disclaimer, the views of today's speaker and organization are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the Council of the Magazine endorses those items. After today's presentation, we'll also conduct a question and answer session with our speaker. To ask a question, click the Q&A button at the bottom of the screen, type your question, and click the Send button. Please feel free to ask your question at any time during the presentation. You don't have to wait for the Q&A to begin. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible, but we might not get to every question. The good news is that any unanswered questions will be forwarded to today's sponsor. Also, after this presentation, we'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey, and I'll tell you more about that a little later. This webcast will be archived, so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, please go to safetyandhealthmagazine.com events. And with that, let's introduce our speaker. With us today is Derek Sang, Technical Training Manager at Bulwark. Derek has worked in the flame-resistant clothing industry in a variety of roles for more than a quarter of a century. He's also developed and conducted more than 250 educational seminars around the country and given keynote speeches on the hazards of arc flash and flash fire, among other subjects, in front of multiple associations, organizations, and companies. Along with his recognition as a subject matter expert, Derek is a qualified safety sales professional and a certified environmental health and safety professional. Again, we'd like to thank you all for tuning in this presentation. Derek, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. Alan, thank you so much for the kind introduction. Uh, good morning, good afternoon, live or archived. I certainly want to express my sincere thanks for you taking time out of your valuable day to learn a little bit more about flame-resistant and arc-related clothing and really in today's subject, talking a little bit about the myths and misconceptions that have surrounded it now, uh, really for the last quarter of a century, so to speak. Uh, today's format, I'm going to try and leave a little bit uh, more time than usual for Q&A and really kind of get some feedback from you all. If we don't cover your myth or misconception, or something that's been kind of tickling the back of your mind today, 
make sure you ask because trust me, when it comes to this particular subject matter, if you have that questions, uh, many of your peers also uh, have those questions. So with that, let's kind of look at what we're gonna hit on today. Some of the most common myths and misconceptions, misunderstanding, and some of them are just flat out wrong. Uh, we'll talk about flame resistant, flame retardant, uh, fire resistant, fire retardant. Is it all the same? If it's the same fabric, if it's the same test results, is it the same outcome? The hazards, specifically, what's the difference between an arc flash and a flash fire? Uh, can one measure and another correlate to, to the other hazard? Uh, the big one, these garments are just way too hot. We're always getting pushed back. And then they're not only hot, but they're expensive. And do they even really work? Uh, doesn't matter what I wear underneath. Uh, this stuff is designed to protect me, so it should protect me regardless of what I'm wearing underneath. Uh, is FR rain gear, just having the designation with the initials FR, if I see that on the packaging, if I see that in the catalog, if I see it online and I hit buy, am I good? I want the lowest body burn. What do, when we talk about flash fire and we talk about measuring, we talk about testing, what does the lowest body burn mean? And is it something we should really be trying to ask for when we're evaluating uh, our garments? For electrical, cotton is fine. Cotton is a safety upgrade. We don't need all this FRAR stuff. Inherent and treated, those terms, uh, are they still valid even today? Here we are. Uh, almost 30 years removed when they first came out, do they still give us insight uh, today? Or did they ever give us insight? And how have they been misused through the years? Uh, Task-based versus daily wear. I'm just gonna buy some kits for my guys. They'll put it on and we'll be good to go. I'm now compliant, but are you safe? And then lastly, uh, time permitting, uh, we'll get a bonus in there considering uh, kind of what we've been going through for the last 24 months and some things to think about when it comes to PPE. So that's the agenda, all going well. We'll have about 10 minutes or 15 minutes or so to get into some of your myths and misconceptions. So what do you, what do you maybe hearing out there? It's all the same fire resistant, fire retardant, fire rated, my cotton Nomax. Hey, just get me some of that 8812. What do, these, what do these terms mean? And then more importantly, when I'm looking through and evaluating these, hey, that's the same fabric with the same testing, the same arc rating, the same calories per centimeter squared uh, of protection, the same 2112, uh, compliance, independent, and it's way cheaper. So is it, is it all the same? Or should I really look into how that garment uh, came to be? Do I really need to know my supply chain? Do I need to know from kind of that uh, farm to table concept? And the answer is yes, absolutely. Uh, it's really important because remember, we build these garments to protect you against a short duration thermal event, whether that's an arc flash or a flash fire. And those are ideally 
or realistically they're unplanned. We're not knowingly, unlike firefighters, we are not knowingly going into thermal events. So when these accidents happen, how that fabric is conceived, how that garment is built, and how I'm wearing it is going to all add into how I come out of that event. So I say all that by we need to have, first and foremost, we look at uh, fabrics that demonstrate that they have flame-resistant characteristics. What do I mean by that? They put themselves out. That's all they do. There's no ballistic qualities to, this, to these garments. There's nothing magical other than they self-extinguish by definition. And how they achieve that ability to self-distinguish can come in a variety of ways. And you as the wearer during that event don't care about any of that. All you care about is it's going to work and there's been no shortcuts, AKA, how do I take something when I see good competitive uh, top of the line FR manufacturers, that shirt, pant or coverall might be in excess of $100. And here I am on a obscure website, seeing a similar test result, looking at similar fabric and it's half the price. Where did they cut corners? Unfortunately, in these garments, you won't find out until you need it to perform its best. You're not gonna find out whether that uh, FR engineering was done correctly. You're not gonna find out whether that garment was put together correctly. Uh, I can take a $5 YKK panic zipper, which allows me to get out of that garment under duress, or I can put in a five cent plastic zipper with non-FR tape so that it fuses shut during that thermal event and I can't get out of it and I can't get that heat away from my body. Am I going to be hurt far more than I should have been if I, if I was in a properly built garment? So knowing your supply chain is key in how it was built. Uh, the other big factor is knowing your supply chain when things go wrong. What do I mean by that? I can take 10 different manufacturers with Navy coveralls and I can walk them around the room. And if I've removed all the identification, all the key indicators that give you insight into who built them, what do they look like? Navy coveralls. You don't know the quality of that FR engineering. You do not know the quality of that build. You do not know anywhere the shortcuts have been made to make a $100 garment into a $50 garment until you are actually in the event. And if there, if you are unfortunate enough to have any of your folks actually use these garments for what we as the market build them for, and that's life-saving pieces of equipment that are gonna self-extinguish and mitigate injury, if you have to use it in that environment, what does that supply chain bring to bear? Can they get down to the microscopic level and tell you how hot that fabric got? Were there any secondary accelerants that came into bear? Did the FR engineering perform as designed? Were there any extenuating circumstances that may have caused additional injuries? Can, did they keep their data for up to 10 years because it may take that amount of time to get a 4X or a 5X or a 6X off the shelf? Do they have the data on the, the first burn, uh, the first lawn at new, the first laundering and 100 launderings, can they tell you the data? Do they know what role of fabric and what factory and can they account for that life-saving piece of a device through its wear life? All those things being said come to bear in the end when you need it to do its job. So the simple answer is they're not all the same.
what is the hazard? This is uh, maybe a different way of, of thinking about uh, the hazard, because if you ask more people in general, when it comes to flame resistant arc rated clothing, just by using the acronym FRAR, people are gonna say, oh, the hazard's real easy. It's going to be a arc flash or a flash fire. And that would be the common understanding of the real hazard. But if I were to tell you that there's not a documented case of a arc flash or a flash fire actually causing the worst case scenario, and that's a fatality, would that surprise you? One, they don't last long enough by definition. Uh, they do get hot enough, but their duration uh, does not last to the point to where they can damage or injure you enough in and of themselves. So yes, that may be a hazard that causes some, but is it ultimately what's going to lead to fatality? So the real hazard when we look and evaluate is clothing ignition. Without clothing ignition, you do not get to the level of catastrophic body burn. Hence, you do not potentially succumb to that catastrophic body burn and all the chain reaction uh, injuries that occur from having extensive body burn that could ultimately lead to fatality. So by definition or by result, by introducing clothing that in and of itself self-extinguishes, puts itself out, we mitigate injury, we reduce the amount of body burn. We definitely do not get to catastrophic or to the extent of where it could potentially lead to fatality. So as you look at a different way of thinking about it, you can look at really the hazard is not arc flash and flash fire in and of itself. The real hazard is catching fire and continuing to burn. So if you just, just for, Again, this is not a direct correlation by any means, but if you look at elimination, if you look at our hierarchy of safety, can we eliminate? Yes, you can eliminate uh, clothing ignition in short duration thermal events. Can you substitute? Yes, I can substitute something like cotton, AKA fuel with fabrics that will not sustain ignition. Uh, can we apply engineering controls to a clothing ignition hazard? Uh, utilizing science to remove the combustion properties of fibers and fabrics by implementing changes at molecular fiber and fabric levels? Yes, we can have engineering controls. Admin controls, yes, by training on the proper selection, use, care, and maintenance of this type of PPE, we can minimize injury or maximize performance of this. Uh, and then obviously PPE, it is PPE. So just a different way of kind of looking at what the real hazard is. So getting into the big topic, FRAR is too hot. And if this was circa 1990 to about 2005, I would reluctantly have to agree with you uh, for a couple of reasons. One, the insulative uh, properties of FR fabrics in order to protect you, in order to uh, provide a barrier and insulation against these types of short duration uh, thermal hazards, we had to have some weight. We had to have uh, something that would withhold itself and sustain itself against long enough so I could mitigate injury and also the engineering could work and self-extinguish itself. So that was right. The other fabrics that were perceivably lighter 
could not get up to the insulated components, especially in, in, on the arc side. And many of them were fully synthetic and they did not have a lot of uh, moisture management capabilities and the technology wasn't there to imply that. So yes, through the 90s and into the early 2000s, I would say that your argument uh, held weight. But where are we are today? When we look, it's too hot, it's too heavy, it's uncomfortable and it doesn't fit well, and we get that kind of pushback and we haven't researched into some of the new technologies and some of the new fiber uh, matrices that give us these new lightweight smart fabrics, uh, we can respond to agreeing with this. And what do we end up doing? We give the authority to just put on when you need it. As if uh, the wearers have some kind of crystal ball and they can look into the future and they can throw their safety belt on right before the accident happens. But what really ends up happening is when you look at that task-based approach, when you look at giving, especially in the electrical contracting and in the electrical world, we allow our folks to go and take their kit and put it on when they need it. Typically that requires putting on a seven ounce to a nine ounce uh, coverall that's in that kit over top of the 100% cotton work clothing that we're already wearing, whether that's our 10 to 12 ounce denim and our uh, five to seven ounce cotton work shirt. We're now putting an additional garment over it. We're adding uh, additional cumbersome layers and uh, we're now wearing a coverall plus all the additional PPE in order to do our job. So by default, by taking that approach, we end up reinforcing the top three problems uh, that FR has had in previous years. It's too hot, it's heavy, it's uncomfortable, it doesn't fit well. And that's exactly what you get when you go to a task-based coverall program. So what we really need to be looking at is we need to be wearing uh, lighter weights, which we can do now today. We wanna have some air permeability, some flow through there, which the fabrics can accomplish that. And we also want to have some moisture wicking capabilities, which mimics your body's own evaporatory cooling system. So all that can be achieved today as we evaluate the newer fabrics. So continuing on this subject, one of the additional things is providing education beyond 2005, 2008 to where we are today in 2021. And also take into consideration all the, uh, the, the heat stress work that's been done, all the, uh, uh, when we start looking at corrections for heat stress, when we start looking at the heat index, when we start taking into consideration from all the research that's been out there, really for the last, five years, we can easily and fundamentally say single layer clothing, whether it's non-FR or FR, uh, it is not a factor in, into heat stress. Uh, there's been a lot of work done, and especially when you look at um, certain articles that have been written, we know when we start adjusting for the heat index, single layer work clothing, uh, whether long sleeves, pants, coveralls, etc have a zero correction factor when it comes to uh, the heat index. Now, that does not take away the fact that anytime you get into barriers, anytime you get into additional layers, 
That would not be accurate if we were climbing into an ARC flash suit. Uh, that would not be accurate if we're climbing into rain gear. It would not be accurate if we're looking at using uh, FR disposable coveralls over top of. Now you're increasing layers, reducing permeability, and in some places applying a barrier. But for the actual all day, every day, single layer work clothing, nominal weights, there is no correction needed uh, when it comes to uh, the heat index and looking at uh, heat stress overall. Lighter is more comfortable. And I caution this because in and of itself, fabric weight is not an indicator of comfort. In fact, comfort is 100% subjective. And if you don't buy into what I'm saying, the next time you all get your team together and you have a group setting and you're all sitting in the right room together, just take a moment, just take a few seconds and scan the room and take a look and you'll see a variety. You'll see folks in short sleeve polos, long sleeve polos, sweatshirts, hoodies. You might see vests, multiple layers. And I'm going to guess that everybody's first goal in dressing that day was to be comfortable. And each one of your team members would be comfortable or they'd be adding or doffing layers right there to achieve comfort. And it's completely subjective for each individual sitting in that ambient air temperature of 70 degrees inside uh, your, your meeting space. So that there tells you that regardless of weight, uh, it's not the prime indicator of comfort. So when you're looking at brochures, websites, marketing pieces, or they say it salespeople and they tell you this is the lightest, most comfortable, that is inaccurate. The two are not, uh, don't necessarily work and walk hand in hand. Yes, fabric weight is one of the factors, but there are other things that go into providing something that is a much more uh, conducive to what we all perceive as comfort. And that's being dry, uh, and that's having a feeling of coolness against our skin uh, that's keeping us feeling that we are comfortable. So high air perm, how do we get that? Well, you have to have the FR engineering that will allow you to open up the weave to achieve air permeability. There are a lot of lightweight fabrics out there right now that the weave is so tight in order to obtain the insulative components that after their moisture wicking finish wears off, they are almost unbearable as far as wearing because it's scratchy, it's uncomfortable, and even though it may be light in weight. So we do wanna have the technology that we can open up the weave and have some air pass through, kind of that swamp cooler effect on a, uh, uh, a summer afternoon. And then make sure that the moisture wicking property is part of the fiber blend and it's included in that fiber matrix. Uh, whatever that typically cellulosic is, and it's not a finish dependent. All finishes, all finishes in the marketplace today are temporary, typically about 25 laundrings, a little less in an industrial laundry environment. So in a relatively short period of time compared to that garment's wear life, uh, 
that moisture wicking, that removal of moisture or transferring of moisture from your body to the atmosphere, keeping you cool because it's mimicking your evaporatory cooling system is gone. So you want to, as you're researching it, you want to look at a balance and you want to make sure that balance is actually woven into the actual uh, fabric matrix by utilizing the best attributes of all those fibers that are going into making that garment. So first and foremost, in our world, we have to be protective. A lot of folks say, hey, here we have this great garment over here in the retail space. It's non-FR, but can we just mimic that or make that like, and we would wear it all day, every day? Not that easy. First and foremost, we need to protect to whatever the hazard is you're using this in. Is it a, a short duration thermal event from fire like we have in our refineries and our oil and gas exploration and our chemical facilities? Or is it arc flash in our utilities and our general industry thing? I have to get that component solved first. Then I can work on providing air permeability, moisture wicking, and look to reduce the weight as much as we can. The cool thing is, is today we have fabrics that are doing just that. Uh, thanks to a lot of uh, information and input from our uh marketplace, and that's you all that wear them, they have been working over the last decade to get that fabric weight down, to get to where we can have an open wave, where we're actually utilizing a lot of the technology that we're seeing in the performance world, that we're seeing in the athletic world, and we're bringing that into our industrial athletes and allowing them to take the same components and also maintain that protection. So where we are here in 2021 going into 2022 compared to just even five years ago uh, has come a long, long way. One of the other things we get is this stuff is just way too expensive. Uh, and that may be one way of, of looking at it and looking to cut costs from a per piece standpoint or looking at uh, cost in a different way can maybe help you promote the fact that you need to have top quality PPE. Uh, we don't get the same kind of pushback when we sit there and we talk about fall protection and fall harnesses. Uh, no one wants to be dangling 20 feet off of uh, Mother Earth uh, in the cheapest, uh, most economical uh, poorly built fall harness that uh, the company is willing to provide. Uh, we don't seem to get that kind of pushback when it comes to those types of life-saving pieces of equipment. Uh, but for shirts, pants, and coveralls, because people still have the image that these are clothing and garments, in which they are 99.9999% of the time, or unless you need it to do what it has to do to save your life, uh, there seems to be a, a mentality to look at cutting costs. And when we do that, when we push it into a, uh, when you start looking at it as a commodity, you're taking safety uh, really out of the picture. Uh, you're looking at uh, asking a marketplace to get innovative, more creative and provide more comfortable 
lightweight, better moisture management systems from a daily wear standpoint, yet not having the resources to do that. So you eliminate uh, innovation. Uh, could you be sending the wrong message to your team to where, hey, we know what we need to get. We kind of know what a fair, equitable price for it is, but we're going to go out and find the cheapest, least expensive as possible and provide that to our people. Uh, you obviously are not getting the best quality and the best durability when it comes to the economics, and that's just universal across the board. If you're going to save money, you have to be sacrificing something. We all know what the value equation is. You're not going to be able to source from one single supplier. You may able to find folks that can supply uh, lower cost pants, but their shirts are more expensive. Someone who can get low cost jackets, but they're not gonna have the coveralls and the price point you want. So when you start driving down on price point, you may be increasing your cost to source overall because it's gonna take a much greater broader sweep to try and find the least expensive in every category that you need. So something to think about. You end up having a uh, transactional relationship with your supply chain. And that may not be the best uh, when it comes to utilizing PPE and safety products. And then the real danger is at the end of the day, as I alluded to earlier, uh, as a marketplace, we generally know what the fabric costs are. We, whether you're looking at uh, whatever engineering or combination of engineering to get that FR properties, we know what those cost. We know what it costs to cut and sew. And at the end of the day, you see something that's completely imbalanced, where the large majority of garments fall between uh, X dollars and Y dollars, and you have this outlayer at Z, where did they cut the corners? And unfortunately, you're not going to know that until you need it not to be there. Meaning that those corners that have been cut will show up during a thermal event and ultimately cause more injury and uh, cause more damage when that was what the goal of the program was to mitigate in the first place. And it only takes one of those uh, when you start looking at the cost, it's astronomical what it costs uh, for burn injury. Uh, on average, $25,000 a day, a 40 to 60% body burn is 54 to 60 days in a burn unit, if not more. Uh, easily, you're getting into those large numbers where you're talking about $750 to a million dollars just in the burn unit. Lifetime costs can be 10 times that. Uh, burn injury is arguably the most damaging that can happen to the human body and thus the most expensive. When you start looking at just the specialties that are involved because you've affected every single system in your body, uh, your, your muscular system, your skeletal system, your neurological system, your renal system, uh, all those have specialists that are going to have to be uh, at your side for the first at least 14 days in order for you to possibly leave my burn unit at some, at some time. And that's not going to be cheap. So when you start factoring in the cost of a shirt, pan, and coverall versus the cost of uh, increased injury, it's literally pennies on the dollar when it comes to the PPE side. Does all of this expensive PPE work? Uh, absolutely. 
when, it, when we start looking at protecting versus non-protecting, uh, this simple graph here shows you uh, 25, 50, and 75% body burn. And that's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is anything under 25% body burn across all age categories is almost 100% survivable. And if you think about that, what does that mean? That means I've implemented my, my flame resistant arc rated shirt, pant or coverall because if I'm wearing those garments correctly, there's not 25% of me left over to hurt. Uh, if I happen to be in an event that maybe overwhelms or exceeds the performance capabilities to a slight degree of that flame resistant arc rated shirt, pant or coverall, I am still under 25%. So by implementing the PPE that we're talking about, you virtually take away fatality across the board. When you start seeing the increase in the fatalities is when you either are not implementing the proper PPE or you're implementing the PPE partially or you're not deploying it properly. Because once I start seeing that number creep up to 50%, and in many cases over that, that's when we see fatality, and especially as we get older, start to factor in. Does it matter what I wear underneath my flame-resistant garments? Do we have to spend time educating our workforce on what they need to do on a day-to-day -day basis when they're implementing or deploying their PPE? And the answer is absolutely. The rule of thumb is underneath our flame resistant arc rated garments, we can wear natural fibers and natural fibers only. That is cotton for the large majority of time, wool in uh, the winter months, and in many cases, uh, silk. We want to obviously avoid synthetic layers. The most uh, obvious one that we think about is bringing gear from uh, our home that may be considered moisture wicking, more comfortable, lighter, AKA performance fabrics, AKA garments that should only be worn in a gym. Those 100% synthetic moisture management systems will shrink wrap, can liquefy. And in the case of an arc flash, it'll be driven into your skin at 2,200 square foot pounds of force, causing you to spend multiple weeks in a burn unit while they deburr that plastic out of you. Also from a heat stress standpoint, utilizing uh, flame resistant base layers, which eliminate uh, a lot of what we just talked about. Absolutely, two lightweight layers may provide greater protection uh, depending on your particular situation versus a heavier outer layer and your natural fiber base layers. So it is very important that we teach folks on proper uh, wear when it comes to undergarments because our hazards can overwhelm that outermost protective layer. And what do I mean by that? Typically in our electrical world, uh, those arc ratings, the incident energy that we're matching our arc ratings to are determined at through calculations. Those calculations have two key variables in them that can be altered. One, closing time, second distance. If that equipment does not close as quickly as I calculated it at and or, and or my electrical worker is closer than the 18 inches I calculated it at, they're going to be exposed to greater incident energy and it may overwhelm that outer layer. That's what you see in the top picture. That arc rated shirt performed perfectly. 
itself extinguished, put itself out, but you can see we have break open. So in that area, it received more energy than it was able to uh, insulate and protect against. Underneath, we have the requirement to police the underwear. Uh, what we had there is a fully synthetic uh, athletic performance gear that was uh, liquefied and uh, driven into the skin, uh, causing significant scarring. That did not need to happen if that had been a natural layer. And better yet, it absolutely would not have brought in any break open concerns if it had been an additional flame resistant arc rated layer. So we definitely want to make sure that we're educating and training folks on what they wear underneath. Is the designation FR good enough, especially when it comes to vests and rain gear? I had an inquiry not too long ago. It says, am I putting my people in jeopardy if they are wearing non-FR uh, high-vis vests as part of their uh, response to low-light conditions? And the easy answer is absolutely. You have just nullified your perfectly good flame-resistant arc-rated clothing program. You've probably invested tens of thousands of dollars over the years by putting the wrong outer layer on. In addition, having uh, misrepresented uh, outer layers, aka vests that say they're FR by meeting the wrong standard. Typically in today's market, you can see some economical FR vests that have been tested to ASTM 6413 that you may think are applicable, that is the wrong vest. And if it's in your rain gear, it is the wrong rain gear. How do you, how do you notice those? The real easy way is if that rain gear costs you less than $200 and that vest costs you less than $50, you probably have the wrong rain gear and the wrong vest. Uh, ASTM 6413 is not a performance standard. You will have no idea how that uh, fiber matrix on that vest will hold up in an arc flash or a flash fire. Absolutely zero. In fact, ANSI 107 gave you six standards that you can utilize in uh, acquiring the proper high-vis flame-resistant arc-rated vest. ASTM 1506 is the most common. That's going to have an arc rating in it. It's easy to designate. NFPA 2112, there's not many of those that have been tested to that standard, but that is another one that is applicable. Your rainwear standards, ASTM 1891 for arc flash, ASTM 2733 for flash fire are the other two. And then 1977, which is your wildland fire. We don't see many of those around, but that would be applicable. And uh, 2302, uh, it's been revised. It can't be the only standard referenced in the label. There must be an additional standard of the previous uh, five that I mentioned. And that's it. Nowhere does it talk to 6413, and it definitely doesn't talk to NFPA 701. NFPA 701 used to be a lot more common in our uh, high-vis uh, and that was a drapery, drapery and linen standard that's used in the hospitality industry. And that's a fire retardant chemical that's uh, put on drapes and linens in order to retard the rate at which it burns in order for you to get from the 10th floor to the parking lot safety. It is not meant for garments. So be really cautious. If you've got an opportunity to go to your tool rooms or go to your 
uh, areas. If you're handing these out in bulk or you hand them out per employee, make sure they are uh, FR and AR to the correct standard. Where you'll see that is in the label. Uh, you'll see this is an ad, this here is an example of a misleading label, and I'll use that term uh, loosely. Uh, but here you see in bold letters, it talks about 100% polyester treated to self-extinguish. That should be an indicator right there that it's not going to, nor should it be, uh, protection for your arc flash or flash fire hazards. It states that per ANSI, it has to tell you that it's not FR. So here you have some uh, label trying to convince you that there's some self-extinguishing FR properties here through their misleading uh, communication, but they have to in order to say we're not FR. So part of that label is telling you it's not FR. The other part of the label is telling you it's kind of FR because if you look down to the lower right, this is a type R class two FR by ASTM 6413 which is not 6413 in and of itself is not a performance standard. And then you'll also see to the left, if you read it, self-extinguishing treated fabric. And it also states uh, higher up that it wears out, meaning that it washes out. So this potentially could be a high-vis vest or rain gear that you can't get wet. So the whole, it's, it's, it's rather comical on some of these that they put out there, but you have to be very cautious about what's going on. One of the big questions we get in many of our flash fire hazards is, uh, can you give me the body burn percentage? Because there is a body burn percentage based on the core fabric that has to be tested to ASTM 1930 in order for us to continue building or utilizing a fabric to ultimately build a commercially viable coverall or shorter pant, we have to do single layer fabric testing to ASTM 1930. That's the mannequin test that everybody gets to see. And as long as it's 50% or less body burn, we can start doing all this additional testing and all this additional evaluation and ultimately build a commercially viable shirt panda coverall for y'all to wear. Many folks have been not necessarily misled, but misunderstand that that test result that we get is not a performance test. It is literally a pass or fail. I can pass it 20%. 30% or 40%, all it's indicating to me as a garment manufacturer is that I've met the requirements for the standard to start doing everything else. And what folks, when they use this as a performance test may be missing out on certain garments with certain fabrics that may have a higher body burn than what they're looking for, but they're utilizing the test methodology to provide a performance number that's not necessarily what it was designed to do. Remember, this is not a commercially viable coverall. It doesn't have pockets, it doesn't have additional seams, it doesn't have additional anything. It's a single layer fabric that's built for specifically for the test. In fact, if you read NFPA 2112 and 2113, it tells you not to use this test for specifications because that's what it's designed to. So what is the difference between our lab and the real world? Because yes, the test methodology is very good, but understand it's a three second burn. It's a jet fed fuel fire. It's not a flash fire per se. It's 360 degrees exposure, which in the real world is highly unlikely. And then you get your 50% body burn. So how does that look like in the real world? We'll get to that. But remember, 
using ASTM 1930 test data to choose FR clothing is not what the test was made for. So why are you asked? Why do we ask for it? Because, well, one, you would think that it makes a direct comparison. If I have 30% body burn versus 10% body burn, I want the 10%. Well, first and foremost, you've got to remember that 7% of that number automatically is included in the head and in the test method. So I'm down to 23 and I'm down to three. So yes, I'm going to take the three. Well, what if the three was nine ounces and what if the 23 was five and a half ounces and your work environment is July in Louisiana at nine degrees and 90% humidity? Do you really wanna be in the heavier fabric that produced well in this test methodology versus the lighter one? If you just were to go with the, uh, the test results, you might make a decision one way or the other without really knowing everything that goes on. That's why the standards in and of themselves and the annex tell you it's not designed to be utilized as a purchase specification. It's prepared as far as a practical with regard to required performance, avoiding restriction of design whenever possible. Basically, they want to be able to repeat the test, measure the test under a controlled environment so we can have a standard for building garments out of fabrics that have passed the test. So let me give you a, a different visualization. So I'm gonna show you some stills and then I'm gonna show you the actual video of what I want you to start thinking about as far as evaluating real world versus the lab. So here you have your uh, hydrocarbon and on the far left of that small picture, you'll start to see your ignition source. And we're going to then ignite. So we've hit the ignition source here on the lower left. We are just over two tenths of a second into the event. We've already cleared the first half of the screen. We're now moving rapidly. Remember, this is a rapid moving flame front that's fuel dependent. We're moving to the right and pretty soon we'll be out of that 40 feet of uh, facility there. And at two seconds, which is 1.7 or 1.84 seconds from when we first ignited, we have no thermal energy in that 40 foot area. So what did this demonstrate? This demonstrates rapid moving flame front as it goes back to the source and we are not in any one particular spot in time for three seconds. So this is not a jet fed fuel fire. It's a rapid moving flame front. So we're only going to, if we were positioning a mannequin there, only half that mannequin would be uh, exposed to the thermal energy as it rapidly moved over them. And what you see to the right there is fire. Uh, we're not in it for three seconds. It's not a jet fed fuel fire at 360 degrees. So if you take those two factors alone, what is better? And I just picked two numbers here, 32% or 14%. If I gave you a test result at 32 and I gave you a test result at 14, you would automatically spec the 14. Who wouldn't? That's exactly, I want the lowest body burn for my people. But if you take that out of the lab and put it into the real world and you look at that rapid moving flame front, you go, well, it's not hitting me at 360 degrees. It's washing over me. And it's definitely not three seconds. It's half of that at best. 
cut the numbers in half and cut them in half again. You go from 16 down to eight and you go from seven down to three and a half. Now you have an 8% versus a three and a half percent body burn. Statistically, from, from a standard deviation standpoint, they're virtually equal. Why do I say that? It's more than just the body burn graph has to go into evaluating what is best for your people under certain conditions. Make sure that you're not getting uh, lured into just one view of what those test methodologies provide you. On our electrical front, cotton is just fine. Cotton has been uh, the myth of the electrical industry for decades, and in some pockets, it still holds true. Cotton is latent fuel. It's just having enough fuel getting ready to burn. So what do we have to do here? By removing fuel, that is exactly why we go to uh, saving our electrical workers. Here you have a cotton fire. That's instantaneous. You're having massive amounts of injury here from something, quote unquote, that is safe to use in front of electrical. And it's been a myth for decades. And we're doing, NFPA 70E has been doing wonders to dispel this myth. And really, in 2000, we were writing, or the committee was writing NFPA 70E to get electricians out of 100% cotton, aka fuel. The next piece of that is they wanted to tell their electricians how big a bomb they were standing in front of. That's what your arc ratings are. There's a difference between a cat one arc and a cat four arc, and we definitely want to dress accordingly. In our electrical community, this has been a Band-Aid and it's got to, if we could snap my fingers and stop one thing tomorrow, I would definitely stop electrical folks or those who are supervising electrical folks who may be in the arc flash boundary from wearing lab coats. Lab coats by definition tell you where they should be worn. That's in a lab. There is nothing in the PPE requirements for NFPA 70E that allow for a lab coat. It is a long sleeve shirt, pant, or coverall with the appropriate arc rating. Long sleeve shirt, pants, and coverall or flash suit if you get incident energies greater than 12 calories. So in the two methods to where we know what our incident energies are, and then also in our cat method, they do not allow for lab coats. Why? Too big an openings. One, the lower half of the body is not covered. Secondly, that stops at just top mid thigh at best and it's an open if that arc goes to the ground and comes up underneath it's going to blouse you that and then more importantly at the neck those are not secured so it does not meet any of the requirements to be utilized electrically inherent versus treated you may have heard these terms they were they've been in the marketplace now for going on 30 plus years and at one point Back in the early 80s, they could have been arguably correct. Inherent and treated came to play when durable FR cotton started to make a commercial uh, pressure against the dominant factor of that time, which was Nomex. Nomex deemed that their fibers were inherent because they had changed the molecular formula of nylon to have uh, frame resistant properties. And they said that the treated components of taking a cellulosic like cotton and putting it through a treatment was inferior to uh, changing the molecular formula. Hence, we have 
the implication that one is better than the other. And at some point that may have been true. Why? Because the implication or the misunderstandings is that inherent, well, the only thing that's inherently flame resistant on this planet in all honesty is asbestos and we wouldn't get very far making asbestos shirts, pants and coveralls. So inherent, is it really inherent? No, actually science came in and took something that was a petrochemical agent like nylon, tweaked the uh, molecular formula, and we were able to have uh, synthetic fibers that resisted igniting. Uh, was it better performing? That could be argued. Uh, how it was laundered, it didn't matter. Well, to be really accurate, it does matter how you launder all FR. There are some uh, products like bleach and uh, peroxides that will damage all fibers. Treated is chemically dependent. Uh, that was true. Surface topical treatment, not entirely accurate. It actually bonded with the cellulosic fiber and was uh, durable. Laundering's affected the FR properties in the very, very loosest sense. Uh, that could be argued, but just like the inherents and the treateds, they're all, uh, there are ways to properly launder them, and there's ways to launder them where you can uh, mess with those FR, uh, the FR engineering. At the end of the day, where are we now? And that's what we're talking about is where are we today? In this small schematic here, you have natural fibers running left to right, and you have synthetic fibers running north to south. Uh, do they have FR properties? Uh, maybe, maybe not. Uh, are they there for strength? Are they there for the FR? Maybe, maybe not. But at the end of the day, what does this tell us? Do we call this inherent or treated? If I have, say, Nomex, Kevlar, or some kind of aramid or other para-aramid running north and south in the synthetic direction, and then I have a rayon and a lyocyl running east and west for comfort, uh, and then I also have some FR engineering as far as at the fabric level, say my cotton, I also have an FR cotton in there or an FR mold acrylic, is that inherently or is that treated? The bottom line is, is those terms no longer accurately talk about our marketplace today, if they ever did, and nor should they, because really at the end of the day, there's three ways to achieve FR engineering, the molecular level, the fiber level and the fabric. All we really care about as a wearer at the end of the day, is it their day one? Is it their day 1001? And more importantly, is it the day, is it there the day that we need it to work the most when we actually are in that short duration thermal event? And is it going to meet the advertised protective products that we purchase? So when you look at primary and secondary clothing, we really want to understand that we're in the secondary clothing world. And in the primary clothing world, that's task-based. In our world, we have to be wearing it all the time. Firefighters can don and doff their gear because they are knowingly going into a thermal event. In our world, we can't, don't have the ability to don and doff because believe it or not, we don't build electrical systems and or our chemical refining and oil and gas things to blow up. These are events that in many cases are unpredictable. And in many cases, we don't have time to stop what we're doing and going and putting on our PPE. We have to have a baseline of protection all day, every day. And that is the core difference between being task-based and being uh, all day, every day, uh, basic baseline of protection. As an employer, I know my electrical workers, my oil and gas, my folks that are in my chemical facilities have a baseline of protection if everything goes wrong. 
because they, unlike my firefighters, don't have time to go get it and put it on when they need it. And remember this, regardless, PPE is your last line of defense until it is your only line of defense. Your hierarchy of safety has failed if there's an arc flash or a flash fire. You can't engineer it out. You can't eliminate it. You can't uh, admin it out. It's all you've got now is your PPE, and it doesn't work unless you're wearing it properly and wearing it correctly. So as we wrap up here, just real quick, uh, one quick bonus in the world we're in today, stop sharing your PPE. The biggest thing that we've taken away from the pandemic is you can't be sharing, uh, whether it's gloves, whether it's hard hats, face shields, whether it's hoods from our, from our arc flash suits, please cease and desist from sharing equipment because one, they're very, very difficult to sanitize in the field. They come with a multitude of different surfaces that need different types of, of sanitization and cleaning to take care of. Uh, so the best practice is, and I know no one wants to hear about increasing costs, the best practice is, is to get everybody their own gear, gloves, leathers, uh, hard hats, face shield, balaclavas, anything in and around that respiratory area, uh, make sure that we're taken care of. The cool thing is there's no special cleaning necessary for flame-resistant arc-rated clothing as it pertains to uh, taking care of COVID-19. If 20 seconds of hot water and soap takes care of it on your hands, uh, 30 to 40 minutes inside a washing machine in excess of 100 degrees and then inside a dryer is definitely gonna nullify your virus. So time, sanitizer, soap and water is all we need. And that's exactly what your instructions tell you. So with that, that is my contact information. Uh, please don't hesitate to reach out. And uh, we don't have as much time as I hope for Q&A, but uh, if you have something that's happening on your site and you want to uh, ask me about it, don't hesitate, shoot me an email anytime. And with that, Alan, back to you. Well, thank you so much as always, Derek, for this fantastic, insightful presentation. And before we start the q and I wanna remind everyone about the evaluation survey we're asking you to complete. This survey will open in a different screen after this webinar. Your input is important because it'll help us improve our future webcast. Okay, our first question, can FRAR clothing be washed with the general laundry? And is there a recommended temperature not to exceed when laundering? Good question. Uh, the rule of thumb is, and it's, it's really not anything to do with the non-FR properties that you'd be coexisting with in the washer and dryer, but just from a good business practice. You don't want to bring any of those uh, soils and chemicals from your work environment and mix it with your family's clothing in general. Uh, there is a hot water uh, max for uh, flame-resistant arc-rated clothing, but you're not going to get there in the residential world. It's typically over 160 degrees Fahrenheit, where we, we tell our industrial laundry folks, make sure you don't go over this mark. Residential, if you're over 110, you might be able to push to 120 in some cases, but you're not gonna reach the maximum uh, in, in your residential world. Uh, so that should not be a concern. So our next question, what is the proper way to repair and patch FR air clothing? Can you iron on a patch? Great, uh, no, well you can. The rule of thumb is uh, like materials and Nomex or Aramid thread. So the cool thing is, is you can hop on the Google uh, look up Nomex or Aramid thread, uh, purchase whatever colors you need, hold on to a couple of old shirts, pants, and coveralls, because you're going to want to use like materials to make that patch. 
they do make some uh, FR patches. Uh, I'm not as familiar with those, uh, and I don't know how readily available they are. But understand this, you've broken the integrity of that PPE. You can and are allowed to repair them, but there are no guidelines to how many repairs you can have. So here's what our rule of thumb is. Uh, you make the okay sign. That okay sign has three fingers up in the air in a small circle. That circle is about the size of a nickel. And those three fingers tell you how many inches you're allowed to repair one of each. So one tear, three inches or less, and one hole and nickel size or less is what we recommend on any single garment. If you're going beyond that, retire the garment. You don't, you don't allow your fall harness to be frayed, nick, cut, or otherwise don't allow this life-saving piece of equipment to be compromised either. Uh, I think we have time for one more question. Uh, if, if NFPA 2112 and ASTM F1930 are not real-world tests and cannot be used as purchase specifications, what specs then do we give our purchasing group or write into our standards to ensure minimum protection for our employees? And is there a better set of standards available? Thank you for asking that, because I do want to clarify, uh, ASTM 1930 is a great test methodology. Uh, NFPA uh, 2112, fantastic as far as, yes, we want to be compliant to 2112, because if I'm meeting that, you can argue that's absolutely the worst case scenario that my garments are going to see uh, in, in the real world. So don't misinterpret what I'm saying as far as don't use those. Absolutely use those, but understand what it's telling you. Uh, yes, you can look at the body burn percentages, and yes, you can use that to uh, get a kind of a, a catalog of garments that you're going to evaluate, but don't make that 5 to 10% difference in that body burn be the sole reason that you choose one over the other. The best indicator is to Get four or five that you like or two or three that you like and then get wear tests. Get them out in the field because if they are compliant to NFPA 2112, you know that they've done the due diligence on the backside. So you've got that common starting point and then look at how do my people like it? How does it work in, 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 in my actual environment? How do my folks like the garment to mitigate pushback? So yes, don't 2112, 1930 test methodologies are great. They're good evaluators. Continue using them. Just understand what they're showing you in that laboratory under those conditions. That's a three-second burn at 360 degrees, uh, which means if I'm passing there, I'm going to I'm going to do pretty well in the real-world uh, alternative. Is what I'm trying to communicate. Well, thank you, everyone. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. I'm sorry that we didn't get to everyone's questions, but unanswered questions we forwarded to today's sponsor. Again, we also hope you take the time to share your feedback through our survey. This ends today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. I'd like to thank Derek Sang, our sponsor Bulwark, and of course, everyone who joined us today. Take care and be safe.